everyone, it's Patricia. Thanks for coming back for another episode of the Bad Chinese Teacher Podcast. This week, I sat down with my good friend Chandra Tseng, who originally hails from Taidong, Taiwan, and recently finished his graduate studies in applied linguistics at Columbia University's Teachers College. He's now an ESL instructor at Adelphi University in New York. One of the first things you'll notice about Chander is how natively fluent his English is. But the real kicker is that he's lived almost his entire life in Taiwan and only moved to the U.S. just two years ago. It stands to reason, though, because the second thing you'll notice about Chander is just how passionate he is about language acquisition and English proficiency and the level of care and enthusiasm he takes when sharing this passion with his students and colleagues. We talk a bit about our shared experiences traveling Taiwan together as college students, his time as an English teacher at a public Taiwanese high school, how his passion and proficiency in English began, and so much more. If you're an ESL teacher or if you're someone who speaks English as a second language, this episode is for you. Hope you enjoy. I'm here with my friend Chander, not Chandler, which some of you might have thought because that's the character from Friends. And I want to ask Chander, how many how many times have people mistaken your name for Chandler instead of Chander? I don't even know. I think every single person who I meet for the first time, probably. <laughs> um, and there's a funny backstory about that because originally it was Chandler. I'm not sure if Patricia actually, you know. So what happens is... Um, you know, in English classes, when you're very young, usually teachers will give you a list of English names for you to choose from. So I just picked Chandler out of the blue, and then, but everybody had the trouble pronouncing the L in Chandler. And then, so the teacher was like, oh, why don't you just drop the L and then you can have your own name? And then at that time, I didn't know what I meant, but I got Chandler <laughs> and then that's the rest of history. <laughs> that's amazing yeah. I love it just because it's so like unexpected but that is so you um, this is my friend Chander, Chander Tseng, um, who is currently what are you up to right now I know you're in New York but are you you just finished uh, grad school yeah. but what are you up to right now in New York so now I'm a full-time ESL teacher in Adelphi University in Long Island I just started a few three months ago and then yeah so that's what I'm doing now that's awesome was it always your goal to be working with college students Yes, I would say so. Um, I've been experiencing, uh, we're exploring um, different audiences, different populations for ESL teaching and learning. And then I'm just more leaning towards adults. So I think this just lands perfect. That's so cool. I think that's so awesome because like the fact that you're now teaching college students. So the thing is like Chandra and I met, we met when we were in college, kind of, right? Yes. Yeah. So so just for reference, Chandra, where, where is home for you? I don't know if people can really tell based on your impeccable English, but where is home for you? You're too nice. Um, I'm from Taiwan originally. <laughs> <laughs> I moved to the U.S. two years ago, and then wow, yeah, so Taiwan is my home. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay, so you moved to the U.S. two years ago for grad school, right? And yes. where was that? Um, that was at Teachers College, Columbia. Awesome. So we met uh, in 2014 through a student conference, which was in Taiwan. So home for you, not home for me. Um, but we met at a, at a student conference called the Taiwan American Student Conference, which is basically like this like 14 to 21 day, like kind of romp around Taiwan where we there's like American students and there's Taiwanese students. And it's basically this kind of intercollaborative effort. You were, um, I had just finished college. That was, I had just graduated. But what year were you when you were at TASC? I think I was um, going to be a junior, I think, after wow. TASC. Yeah, I think maybe that's yeah. about that time. 
That's that's so nuts to think about. And so we met when you were a junior in college, and now are you teaching juniors in college? It's crazy because I'm teaching grad students. Yo, <laughs> it's insane. Wait, yeah. so you having just been a grad student yourself, you are now teaching grad students? I know it's surreal. So now, <laughs> yeah, these are incoming grad students. Um, they haven't officially mm. started their coursework yet, but they're taking language classes so that they're ready. Okay, so yeah. what what are your students generally like studying? Um, most of them are in business related majors or programs. I do have a few who are in social work, computer science, and other programs as well. Okay, and yeah. so they're mostly there for language. Um, for their master's program eventually, um, but because they have to polish the language before they start their official coursework, and that's where the ESL instructors come in. So we kind of prep them to be ready for what's coming in the actually quote unquote real world. Oh, that's so yeah. interesting. So, so your uh, your graduate degree was in linguistics, correct? Applied, in, in applied linguistics? linguistics, yes. Right. So, can you tell me a little bit about like what is what was your field of study there, and like what you were kind of nerding out in during your two years at at TC? Yeah, of course. Or was it one year? Was it one year or two years? Two years, yeah. Two years, gotcha. Yeah. All right. Feels too long. <laughs> um, so, applied it. linguistics in my program basically were just talking about application of um, whatever language research that people do, and mainly on language learning and teaching, assessment, and how people actually use language in real life. So um, based on the definition, it's pretty broad in general. Um, it kind of just, you know, it depends on which direction you want to go into. So a lot of those are, um, are language teachers or have educate, education backgrounds, um, sort of more leaning towards how people acquire languages and how we can facilitate language learning so that we can help our students become better language users. That's awesome. So, yeah. yeah, so it's interesting because like I feel a lot of folks when you look at the typical like Taiwanese student or a student from Asia who's coming to the US to study, um I don't know, are there when you were in when you were in grad school were there a lot of folks who were in your position that were like coming from countries outside of the U.S. to uh, to teach, I mean, I don't know if this is your main goal, but to teach like English, um, not being a native speaker? Um, in my program in particular, because um, my program is affiliated with um, TESOL, which is teaching English to speakers of other languages. Um, so a lot of us are non-native speakers coming in from abroad, and then most of us want to get that experience and knowledge and whatnot and then go back to home countries to teach or go overseas to teach. So that's a pretty common phenomenon, I would say, in grad school, in the pro in my program, in my field in particular. Mm. And so so yeah. you said that a lot of folks like plan on going back home to teach. And so you clearly are not back home. Um, was it always your goal to stay in the U.S. or was it like, do you plan on making it back to Taiwan someday? Um, that's just something that I'm trying to figure out because for sure I want to contribute what I have learned, what I've gained, what I've been trained, you know, to my home, um, Taiwan. Um, but I do want more experience out here, just trying to get more exposure and then also get some hands-on training in different settings. Um, plus, I'm also kind of with my partner now um, in New York City. So it's kind of like just going mm. it day by day and then see how things go. Yeah. 
That's so interesting. I feel like a lot of like, I mean, I know my my dad had the very same sentiment when he did his grad work in the U.S. and then had always had this idea of giving back to the mother country, so to speak. And so, but the thing is, like, like you know, like you said, life kind of leads its own path and gets in the way, and you know, shapes itself. And so, that's yeah, yeah that's super cool that you have that in mind. I kind of want to walk back a little bit to task, um, yeah, just because we had mentioned Taiwan and we had mentioned kind of like the context under which we met. So, um, so once again, like task was this like student program um you know mostly undergrad students although i feel like during our year there were like a lot of grad students as well so it was like a really really wide mix of ages so i remember when i applied to task i was like having just graduated and i was like i don't know what i'm doing with my life and i just want to go back to taiwan which is like like as shallow a reason as any but i kind of want to hear from your end like why what how you found out about task and what drew you to it yeah, so I think I remember the email I received about Task at that time. And as I said before, I was sophomore when I got the email about Task. And then at that time, I was in a foreign languages department in undergrad. And then so the department office sent out the email um, like any other advertisement. And then when I saw it, I just I think that just really drew my attention. Are there like a um, lot of like programs like that that get advertised like study abroad or like even cultural exchange programs that like you would get emails about all the time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And really? um hmm. yeah, I think so. I think I've got a lot of emails and then just, you know, circulation of different programs, different events, which is super cool. Um so when I saw it, I think yeah, this is just, you know, what I've been wanting to get myself exposed to. Because I've always been interested in American culture, and then I was in a language, foreign language department, and then I just really wanted a chance to really meet with American students and discuss and share ideas, and you know, just you know, share our lives and experiences with with them. So at that time, that really spoke to me, and then yeah, that happened. And apply, and then I met Patricia there. Haha. <laughs> um, yes. So how was like? I don't know because from my end, there weren't. I mean there aren't a lot of programs to go to Taiwan period. And so it's like over on, on my end, but like uh, you had mentioned that there were like that, that task was one of many of these sorts of programs that get advertised to students. So like what made task different to you than the other programs that were available? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, it was a pretty new program at that point, right? This was literally its first year. There was like, no, yeah, we were like the first cohort, but even then, what did you see in task that like other programs didn't really have? I think I think what drew to me was um the holistic nature of task if that makes sense mm, yeah that it's not only just professional development there's also um, an educational aspect where we have peer discussion roundtable discussion of different topics and then we also would have lectures site visits and then you know just the cultural exchange so for me it, I feel like it's really like a holistic experience it's not just three days put on a suit talk mm. about this done but it's actually really engage, um, I guess, that kind of engagement with the peers and then with the people that we'll meet um, in that conference. So I was like, that's an experience that I have to have. If I want to invest this time, then I want to do all of this. Yeah, I'm just always so curious as to know, like, why Taiwanese students are interested. Because every year, like, having seen, like, the recruit, I mean, both of us have seen, like, the recruitment end of this. After we left TASC, mm-hmm. we then did a little bit of volunteer work to plan, like, subsequent conferences. Um, yeah. And every year, right? I mean, TASC takes place in Taiwan. Like, it goes to, like, mm-hmm. not just Taipei, but also, like, just, you know, Taizong, Tainan, wherever, just basically around the entire island, right? Um, and yes. Taiwan's not huge. 
geographically, but it's interesting because like there's always so many Taiwanese students, more Taiwanese students that like apply to task than American students, yeah. right? And I mean that makes sense because given the cost, right? It's like it's kind of mm-hmm. pricey to fly halfway across the world and travel for three weeks. Um, it yeah. kind of does make sense that there aren't as many American students, but I'm just like always so blown away as to the number of Taiwanese students who would like take part of their summer just to like stay at home basically you know what i mean like i i can kind of mm-hmm. see the appeal of their if they're the ones going abroad but like why do you think that townie students would be compelled to like do this program if it if it because like, i feel like a lot of american students when they see this like their main job is like ooh, i get to travel and see someplace new but i don't know if like task really rep- like presented new things to the townies delegates mm-hmm. yeah that's a really good point um I've never thought about that before, but I guess when I applied, I was seeking, you know, like that kind of holistic experience. I also wanted to meet American students, so that Mm -hmm. kind of all spoke to me. Mm -hmm. I guess one of the things is that we'll be able to travel in different parts of Taiwan as well. So although Taiwan is my home, I know Taiwan very well, but I knew we were going to places that maybe I wouldn't go Mm -hmm. if I didn't have task. Um, like when we went to Shaolin Village oh, um, yeah. in Kaohsiung, and then that was a very unique experience that we got to explore this little town um, that was devastated by the flood or typhoon um, in the previous year. Um, and I think for a lot of Taiwanese students, well, number one is the cost, as you said. Um, and then they're also seeking professional development opportunities with their American counterparts or students. Right. And also, I think now... The younger generation, as far as I know, um, is very eager to let Taiwan be seen. So I think when there's like an international event or program out there um, that is going to kind of promote the visibility of Taiwan. And I think that really speaks to a lot of younger generation in Taiwan now. Um, And especially, you know, we can take the American students around and then they can really deeply engage with Taiwanese people or Taiwanese culture, Mm. at least um, in my opinion, I think maybe that'd be a part of the appeal. Yeah, I think one thing yeah. that's always struck me, I mean, even as a as an ethnically like Taiwanese person, I think one thing that's always really struck me about Taiwanese people in general is that, and I've heard this from other people as well, like how excited uh, Taiwanese people get when like other people know that Taiwan exists, you know, <laughs> which is like really yeah. depressing on if you think about it on one level, but it's also just really, uh, really heartwarming to see. Yeah, like you said, it's not just like old fogies who are just like, you know, let me tell you about my war stories, um, and how Taiwan was once great. But it's like young people who really have a real investment in promoting their home country because you know, goodness knows, yeah. Taiwan needs it these days. Um, I love that you mentioned Shaolin Village because that was one of those things that I think everyone on that trip like unanimously or almost unanimously like that is something that I think everyone still remembers you know what I mean mm-hmm. but the thing is like it yeah. was one of those things on the itinerary that was kind of like eh, why would we do that it's kind of like it was like kind of in the middle like in the countryside like not in a yeah. huge city it was just like and we didn't there are like speakers who came, but it wasn't as if like it was like very large structured programs or anything. Um, and we spent most mm-hmm. of that time working on the final forum project. So like at the end of the conference, like we're split up into groups, right? Based on research area or like topical interest area. And we at the end of the conference, of, at the end of task, uh, each each group like does a project and submits a proposal um, addressing a problem that uh, can both be addressed by Taiwanese and American insights. And I remember that most of our time at Xiaoling Village was like, uh, spent working on that final forum project, right? It was a lot of downtime mm. and it was a lot of just like working together. But for some reason, like that 
environment, being able to work in that environment, and then like the context of the stories that took place in that village. Because like you said, it was a village that was just really devastated by natural disaster. And then um, mm-hmm. it was like the, the the willpower and hope of the villagers who live there that like rebuilt that community. And it was just like, I think that really... I don't know. I, I like I, I still have a hard time putting that experience into words because again, it's not as if any of it was constructed, right? Like I don't mm-hmm. feel like um the the executive committees, the the planners of the conference really looked at this place and was like, This is where something special is gonna happen. But I love mm-hmm. how like little things like that happen. Um yeah. in, in really unexpected ways. I think for me, I feel like if I were to, to name a highlight from task, it would it would be that. But was that was that your highlight too, or, or did you have something else that really stuck out to you during that during that year? Um yeah, I think that's definitely one of the highlights. And then I can now, you know, based on your description, I could still kind of remember, you know, the scenes back in the days in Shaolin Village and what we did. Um, it was just a very unique and just personal experience. I think we talked about um, this before about task conference that is so personal, that it's not just mm. about, like I said, you know, put on the suit and then present this done, but it's really about having this conversation and maybe not just one conversation, but you have a follow-up conversation and then you have more um, to really be engaged with um, whoever is there with you. Um, it's that kind of human connection. I think that really... Um, impressed me and then let me still remember what happened there yeah I think that's such an important thing like what you mentioned about like I think I don't know I was equally guilty of this because like the the name in itself like Taiwan America Student Conference it was its, in its first year so there weren't a lot of like photographs of what it looked like so yeah the branding of it I don't know if you got this per- this perception as well but the branding of the conference I had thought it was like one of those like stuffy go and walk around in a suit and feel super important about yourself Same. right okay thank you I that, now I don't feel as bad but, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. it was like one of those things and I feel like there's something about that kind of aesthetic that appeals to like the uh the overachieving self-importance like you know i went to a good yeah. college i mean you went to national taiwan university right um and i know yeah. that at, at least in the u.s like there is that sort of like i don't know self-important attitude that a lot of like elite college students have that it's kind of like uh if i'm going to spend my time anywhere in the summer it's going to be to pad my resume right um it's yeah, just, like yeah, i feel yeah. like so many of us like if you look at the pedigree for task the first year it was like at least on the Taiwan said it was stacked man it was like ntu everywhere um which i'm like kudos right but i just love how like you know well, first of all, I might ask, I mean, you know, for, for for the on the one hand, I can confirm that, like, I feel a lot of, like, American undergrad students definitely, you know, tend to do have that kind of, like, somewhat opportunistic, um, you know, like, I'm only doing this because it's going to help me get ahead sort of mentality in life. Um, do you do you think that Taiwanese students, uh, especially in those, those in, like, the higher ivory towers, so to speak, at NTU or whatever, um, do they kind of have a similar attitude when it comes to, like, picking out what activities they do or how they invest their time? Yeah, definitely. I think it's a, it's, it's something, you know, common that, you know, we all share, you know, when you're kind of on the quote unquote top of the world, you try to advance yourself. And a lot of times, you know, we're perfectionists and then we want to get this and get that to put on a resume, to get this experience, to get this activity done. Um, so that happens. Yeah, definitely. When I was a student at NTU, lots of people were doing internships and then they wanted to have this extracurricular activity and then do this and do that. Just you know, overachieving. And I think a part of it was because um, when we were in high school, uh, most of us in high school in Taiwan only focused on studying your academic studies and then your grades and all of that. And now you're in college, you know, so many opportunities just open up to you. It's almost like you want to take every chance to do whatever you can do because you couldn't have 
you couldn't do that when you were in high school, if that makes sense. Mm, Just kind of like trying to compensate what you missed. But then, you know, you're overachieving yourself. And sometimes, of course, you're overwhelming yourself as well. Yeah, Yeah. I think that's like, that's, I'm really glad that, I mean, I didn't get it until I was after, after I graduated. But honestly, I was such a slacker in college anyway, that ambition did not matter to me that much. But I'm glad that like, (laughs) task, I I always feel like task is kind of a Trojan horse in that way, right? Mm -hmm. Like it, it does have that like pre-professional sort of experience to it. And you do get to meet with some very important people and ask some really good questions and work with some really smart, smart students. Um, But that personal touch to it, I think is just really unique. Um, And the fact that it's like so long, I feel also like really contributes to the people who are there, people who are traveling together to really feel like a family. Mm -hmm. Um, I always say, and I feel like there are several like other American delegates who felt the same way after task, but that like, it was kind of like, even if, and a lot of us were Taiwanese American, Mm -hmm. at least in that first cohort. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of us kind of felt that like, you know, prior to this, we had gone to Taiwan a lot and we kind of got it like and we understood it and like we were familiar with it. I wouldn't even say like we understood. We like were familiar with it Mm because it was through the lens of our families. Um, And it was only after TAS that I at least felt like, you know, I could kind of um, feel like I could claim Taiwan for myself for the first time in my life. Mm -hmm. Right. And that like I could understand it not only because like, you know, we had done this experience experience that wasn't just like travel. It was like deep dive into Taiwan's current issues Mm -hmm. and and all of that. But also you just felt this sense of like camaraderie with actual Taiwanese people who were like your age Mm -hmm. and like struggling with the same things and like wanted sort of the same things in life. And I just thought that was just super special. Yeah, totally. And then kind of Going back to what you're saying, I just realized that I guess we have to mention that we met the current president, Tsai Ing-wen, during our year of conference right. as well. <laughs> Yo, I'm so glad you mentioned that because that's like the one like flex that we can all have. I she know. wasn't president yet, right? This was she 2014. Wasn't. She was not. Nah, she was like, what What? What did we call her? What was her claim to fame? That just like she had run for president at one point? Like what did we, what did we say? Or that she, oh, she was the chair of the DPP. That yeah, was and then she was, was the previous um, presidential candidate at that time right 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 yeah yeah Yeah. so it was like a one-time dude do you remember this was in taipei right yeah yeah and so i'm trying to like remember that it was like a very i felt it it did it definitely felt like somewhat like a closed door sort of she had her own like media people in the back of the room yeah yeah yeah. right do you remember that yeah um and then she had like kind of like a prepared speech but then we had the chance to ask questions um to be honest do you do you really remember anything from her speech because i don't (laughs) it's been a long time i i feel like she probably said something about like how young people are the future because that's what every like global leader says but like do you like remember anything she said i don't i mean now you mentioned young people i think she talked about young people probably oh yes (laughs) Um, but i was so fixated like just you know at her english and then how she presented herself and then yeah because i was a fan of her back then as well already so it was just like a moment when I just was just admiring her. Mm. Um, I probably should have paid more attention to the content, but <laughs> <laughs> nah, we're just all like starstruck. Yeah. So yeah. like, there's this great photo of her holding the task flag. I think someone there's probably like several copies of it floating out on the internet because it's like her one like big claim to fame. But she wasn't even yeah, yeah. yeah. That's really that's really cool to think about now. Yeah, the more surreal. that I yeah yeah task man yeah so Five years. so. 
I know, right? I feel that's like yeah. one entire kindergartner since we since that that experience doesn't seem that far that long ago, but it still exists. Yeah. Task is now in its sixth year, and I think that applications are now open. So anyone who's a student <laughs> should go apply and experience this for themselves because it's a really great time. Changed my life, um, yes. and I'm sure it changed the lives of many, including Chander and our friends, in many many ways. So, um, yeah. So so after Task, you were uh, still an undergrad for two more years, and then after that, and I had started teaching after that because I had found I. Had started uh my job about two months after i got back from task yeah exciting um, yeah exciting and here we are <laughs> six years later um right. so you you were finishing your undergrad at ntu and did you like do so what was your major in undergrad so um the full um, name of the program was foreign languages and literatures okay so that was my major and then um because i was more interested in education and second language teaching so i also did um, a separate certificate program for secondary school english teachers okay so during the so in doing that certificate that would have made you like a certified teacher in taiwan right yeah for public exactly. school so like did yes. you where did you do your student teaching so I did my student teaching in Xindian High School. So that's the south of Taipei mm -hmm. area. Um, and then, so yeah, I did that after I finished my undergrad. And then um, I was teaching 12th graders for a semester. That's so tough because I I'll kind of all I can imagine is like if you're in twelfth grade right like and and you have this like brilliant teacher Zheng Laoshi coming in and being like <laughs> I'm here to change your life and make you love English and then your students I'm guessing are probably like oh, excuse me I'm going to college next year I'm very stressed out right now please don't bother me was it was it really like that it was uh, <laughs> I mean I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating obviously but. <laughs> no, no, no. But I, I did get their sentiment, though, because mm -hmm. um, at that time, because I also had my cohorts doing their student teaching, and most of them were placed for um, 10th graders, I would say. Oh. So kind of like the freshman, quote unquote, in high school in Taiwan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then I was the only one who got placed in 12th grade. So I already knew like that was going to be a hard time because <laughs> they're going to focus on exams and all of that. And, you know, as aspiring young teachers, you want to do something very, very different. You want to make them communicate. You want to make them do this and do that. But their eyes are on the test. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I've yeah. heard that from a couple of people a couple of people in Taiwan who also had similar aspirations about teaching. Um, I'm, I'm sure this is shared by a lot of people, not just in Taiwan, but this kind of like somewhat idealized picture of what education ought to look like. And then like you get into the classroom and in the case mm -hmm. in Taiwan, it's kind of like, especially for English, I imagine it's kind of like English as a subject is more sort of like, and again, I'm overgeneralizing, but um, I'd imagine there are quite a few students who are just like, the only reason why I'm suffering through English is because it's on the college entrance exam and I got to do mm -hmm. good on that, right? And and what's yeah. painful about that is that like, if from what I know, right, that the English on college entrance exams does not actually resemble in real life English, like practical English. So like, how did you like reconcile the two? Like you obviously, um, you obviously have a very like native like handle on English. And I'm sure that that came not from just like studying a lot of textbooks, but like actually interacting with real human beings, I assume. Mm -hmm. um, whereas like, you know, this other view on learning English is just like, let's learn grammar in a very mechanical scientific way and memorize a lot of things and then take a test. How do you like reconcile those two like very different philosophies as a teacher? Right. Cause you know that like from your own personal experiences that like what worked best for you was not necessarily like just memorizing stuff out of a book. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's so tough. And then I think at that time I was trying to, 
trying to figure out the balance, but I'm not. Sh I was not sure how well I did it. Um, so I I still had to kind of you know cover my bases and then um, cover the content of the textbook, but I did it in a more communicative way, meaning um, I gave a more uh, open-ended questions for students to practice. I brought in more authentic materials, so I might brought it. I might bring in um, um, some some scenes from a TV show related to the content, or videos, or podcasts, stuff like that. Um, so it was not entirely communicative because of the context itself, and then there's so many institutional constraints at the time. You know, in the public mm. schools, getting a setting, you need to do this, you need to do that. What were some um, of those institutional constraints? Just out of curiosity. Yeah, I mean, um, that's a good point. There, there's so many constraints, including, um, of course, the materials you have to cover. You have no freedom to choose um, what you want to deliver, what you don't want to deliver, because everybody's going to take the same, same test at the end of the day. And then um, the progression of the lesson because of the midterm date and then the final date, the test dates, and other kind of just control over the schedule. Um, that makes it pretty hard for us to have flexibility to kind of adjust the content and see if it fits. So it's kind of like just here it is. It's for everybody. Some people will survive. Some people will not. And then that's just kind of the nature mm. of the classroom. And that's something that really still bothers me sometimes because mm. I believe that, you know, everybody is different. Their learning style is different and their aptitude is different. Motivation is different. And there's just so many things that you cannot just expect everybody to get there and you cannot you know entirely blame on the students like oh that's their fault if they don't catch up I mean of course students should be held accountable and I, I know that you can you know share with that more um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah I think no that's what you're saying is like so that is true yeah I mean I think I don't want to say that like you know it's it's as if Taiwan or like Asian education you know structure and American educational structure are like polar opposites and like one it's like yin, yin and yang in a sense because I think there mm -hmm. is some overlap in terms of what students struggle with and what teachers actively try to do. I think teachers overall, um, you know, depending on their own like educational philosophy and maybe even depending like, I don't know what era they grew up in or whatever, like what generation mm -hmm. they are. I'm sure, you know, you and I share a lot of things in common philosophically. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, I, I'd be curious to know, like, you know, if you had a student who was struggling with English, right? Um, is the approach in general, I mean, I don't, this isn't necessarily referring to like your classroom at that time in general, but like just in general, through, as, you, in, as your experiences through as a teacher or like as a student, um, when students struggle, um, how, what, who's like held accountable more? Like, is it kind of like if a student struggling, it's kind of like, well, I guess you have to work harder. Or is it kind of like, um, let us figure out another way for you to understand this? What is it? What happens when a student struggles? I guess, especially in a public school setting, if a student struggles in general, it's the student's responsibility. Hmm. <laughs> um, and then, of course, you know, as teachers, we want to help more. We want to provide more support. But at the same time, in the public school setting, they're so bombarded with other subjects as well. And there's just so many things going on. It's like you're you're giving them more information that they cannot even process if you do it extra and also because the class size is so huge in um typical asian set, uh, school settings um i when i was doing student teaching i had about 35 students in the class 
uh, that was already considered smaller um, compared to the class size maybe five years ago or 10 years ago. Because mm-hmm. when I was in high school, I had 41 classmates, which means my, my teachers had 42 students in the class. That's insane. Um, and probably you had maybe 10 to 15, I would say, maybe struggling in the class. And there are just so many people as well, so many students that you had to kind of give extra help to. It's just kind of realistically not possible. Um so I, I think in general, what teachers do um, in the public school setting, setting is to offer more motivation to encourage them to at least concentrate on, you know, whatever we're doing in class. So if, they're, if their minds are there, at least they're there to process and then get certain things out of the class. Um, but it's just realistically, it's very hard. And that kind of still, you know, took a toll on me when I was there. Mm. Yeah, I just can't imagine. Like, I mean, my this is this is just so ridiculous. That I'm saying this when you're saying yeah, your your high school class had 42 kids in it. Like, my class sizes don't exceed. I, my largest class is 17, and that to me is like enormous. Um, but but it's even that w- with that, such a small group, it's like the range in ability and um and and talent and you know like attentiveness is just the 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 spectrum is enormous right and i can't imagine mm-hmm. how much more because like i feel bad when i have a class of 17 and one kid is struggling right because that to me just sticks out and i'm just like how much more would i feel that if it was like 42 kids and it's not one kid who's struggling but like 10 so i i totally i feel like a lot of like asian classrooms get such a bad rap for being like very good at cookie cutter with their approaches to teaching but i'm just like how could you not right because otherwise unless you have like five teachers milling around you know like there's no way you're gonna get everyone and so yeah you're right It, it is it does feel very like survival of the fittest is that is that correct to say it's kind of like either you get it oh, or yeah. you die you know like it feels totally. awful and but... yeah yeah it feels awful to say that but that goes back to the institutional constraints that we're talking about that is this whole system of seeing who can go to the top who see who can go to uh, go get the highest grades and then they can get to the best universities or colleges and then they can have better jobs it's, for them it's the whole it's a social movement kind of um and it's a social system of course you know things have been changing and then there have been um, a lot of changes in terms of realistically how this works and then you know a lot of teachers are trying to make changes and do something different but still you know that kind of thing still are deep rooted in asian educational cultures and i was talking to one of my students um the other day because we're talking about like educational differences and cultures and all of that and my students said that, yeah, back in the days, even, you know, in high school or college in China, um, we had like 60 classmates. So, and now in my class, I teach two sections. One section is only six students. The other is only seven. For them, it's like such a huge difference. <laughs> it doesn't even feel like and class, they get, you know, like if, if yeah, you're coming out of that. And they get insane. so much individual attention from me. Sometimes they're kind of not intimidated, but they're like, why are you looking at me so mm. often when I'm like, guys, cause I'm with you, you know, mm. this kind of individual intention thing. So they're still kind of, you know, trying to get used to it. It's definitely a drastic change. Um, but yeah, I, I guess from now, you know, we can see how different institutional constraints of different educational cultures impact how we teach and how students learn for sure. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I feel like a lot of the times, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like, um, you know, 
there is this kind of sense amongst American students that like, I don't know, maybe this has to do with the population that I'm in, uh, which tends to be a little bit wealthier and a little bit more privileged. Mm -hmm. Um, But there is this kind of sense of like, you know, no matter where you are on the intellectual scale, like you could be like a a B student who can't spell uh, for your entire life. But like, there is still something in the back of your brain that will always be like, I'm a smart kid. I deserve to have good grades because mm. I'm a smart kid. I can do it, right? Um, mm-hmm. I feel like there is, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but like I feel like there is that conspicuous lack of overall confidence despite your lack of ability amongst Asian culture. Like I feel there's a lot more defeatism even before you begin, right? It's kind of like mm-hmm. kids who already know that like they aren't going to win the social Darwinist battle of like making it to the top. So like they just kind of like give up early on and just kind of exist through school. Do you kind of see that? Cause I feel like that makes sense to me, but I don't know. I haven't had firsthand mm-hmm. experience. Oh yeah. I definitely have seen that so many times as t- a teacher, also as, you know, a student back in the days. And I think, um, you know, parents mean well, and then of course, you know, parents want your children to succeed in the future and all of that. Um, but a lot of, a lot of times they also put a lot of pressure on their kids starting from when they're very young. Mm. So the kids go to cram school, the kids don't have their free time to do, you know, their own things. And then a lot of times for them, it's just competition. That's the only thing left. And when they realize that, you know, they cannot keep up, but then everything is moving so quickly and no one is waiting for them. It's, yeah, it's really frustrating for them. And then for them, it's just kind of, you know, I flow through the classrooms, like I give up on this and this and that. Mm. And I've seen that a lot in my classmates when I was in junior high and senior high. Um, And actually, that's kind of one of my motivations to learn how language acquisition works and then to learn how to be a better language teacher because I see so many of my classmates struggle. I want to help them, but I don't know how. Mm. So that kind of actually inspired me to get onto this path and then to get into this direction yeah i feel like that's such like i don't know i mean maybe it's like i I come from a very i feel like i come from a very similar place like not having seen my own classmates struggle um because again as americans we just feel like we're the best at everything and even when we are struggling we don't Mm -hmm. like to admit that it's our fault um but it but it was more also born out of seeing my own students when i started teaching um and it was more not as much like the kind of self-defeatist sort of like i'm dumb and i can't do it so i'm just gonna sit back and exist in class but it's kind of like the high anxiety there is this like emotional piece i feel that i think in both places as a teacher you're just kind of like within the constraints the institutional constraints that we have you know what can we what can we do to kind of fix these problems because i think you know when you say like i don't know how to do it i'm just like yo me too (laughs) i just like the thing is like you know um, that I like, I, I'm not a super talented linguist, but you certainly are. And I feel like, um, we both know people as a result of task are just very, very talented at languages. And it's so, I don't know, awkward yeah. coming f- from a language teaching perspective when you're someone for whom language comes rather easily, or at least you're interested enough to, in it to like, to let that emotional piece sort of like for you to overcome it. Um, and so mm-hmm. like what I, I kind of want to know is like, again, your, your, your English has always, I really thought in task, I really thought you were an ABC. I really thought you were. You're so nice. No, like I'm, <laughs> I'm totally serious. And even now I just kind of have to shake myself and be like, dude, this is this person's second language. What am I doing with my life? <laughs> no, so many people full stop at task. were like, is Chandler like an American delegate or a townie? Or is he studying abroad? Cause your English was not just like perfect, but it was like just so natural. Um, uh-huh. And, and, but the thing is like, you did not come to the U S until like after college. Right. 
like, the, like two years ago yeah, two years ago right you came yeah yeah which is like that usually people just assume that like oh someone who speaks english that well must have lived abroad right um particularly mm-hmm. the fact again like your accent is so natural um so uh tell the listeners want to know man how did you do it like how how did you manage to sound like a full-blown like disney channel star from america without ever having left taiwan uh, and the thing is like it's not even as if you grew up in where in taiwan I grew up in Taidong, which is like a small town in the east of Taiwan. Yeah, wow, it's crazy. It might take three hours for me to finish the story. <laughs> it's okay, we have time. It's okay. We're good. No, I'm just kidding. But um, I'm glad you mentioned Disney Channel, actually, because I was listening to Disney Channel, watching Disney Channel kind of every day since I was very, very young. And then I think I just got that kind of exposure to English when I was very young because I was sitting just watching TV all day before I went to kindergarten and, you know, Watching too much TV is not good, but apparently that kind <laughs> it's of... It's great for language, though. Yeah, I, I guess so. Yeah, and I was watching a lot of cartoons in English. And at that time, I guess I didn't really understand, of course. And then I remember I asked my parents, like, hey, can I actually watch the Chinese versions of the ca- cartoons that I was watching? And then my mom was like, no, just watch it. You know, just enjoy, you know, whatever you're watching. And then, yeah, she basically, she basically said no. <laughs> But in a way that, <laughs> in the way that was like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah like, I'll just watch it. If you're a parent and you want your child to like learn something and they ask for an easier version, just tell them that they can't and they'll be like, okay. And then they become geniuses yeah. like gender. That's how you do it. <laughs> Can you like, you're do you still so remember any of the names of the shows that you watched growing up? I feel like we might have watched them the same things. Probably. Um, lots of Disney animations though. Okay. So I was watching a lot of, um, uh, the Lion King, multiple times. Oh, man. Um, what else? Aladdin, Mulan. Classics. And then, yeah, a bunch of classic movies, just over and over and over. Mm. And after, you know, afterwards, when I was, you know, studying linguistics and all of that, you know, a, a big theory about language acquisition is repetition mm. and also exposure of listening. So I think that might have played a role when I was very young because I just listened to it over and over and over. Um, plus, there's also, you know, songs and music and those movies. And I think the melody of it also kind of played a role. Um, so I was just drawn to this kind of world, you know, inside this little box mm. um, that kind of fascinated me. And then, you know, English just, just kind of became a part of me. And then, you know, they say like, you know, once you develop a second language, you kind of develop a different personality as well. Mm. Because you kind of learn the sociocultural norms in there. And then you kind of have a different voice, even. I feel like I have a different voice when I speak English. The thing is, like, I have I feel like we only speak in English. So I've the only time I feel like I've actually ever heard you speak Chinese is when you stayed over my house and you spoke to my parents. And I was like, oh, that's what Chino sounds like in Chinese. It doesn't really sound yeah. like him. That's so nuts. No, yeah. I so relate to that. And I keep telling my kids this because the thing is, like, they're super shy in Chinese, right? Yeah. And I'm just like, dude. When you learn a second language, especially if you're, like, bad at it, it's your one excuse to, like, be a very, like, flamboyant and loud and mouthy person and, like, have no filter and people will be okay with that, you know? Mm -hmm. I feel like that's how I am in Chinese a little bit because, I like, I don't care as much. But, like, what is your personality like in in Chinese versus English? Oh, wow. Um, I feel I'm definitely more sassy than English. (laughs) (laughs) Which we love. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, I mean, and ha- I think that has a lot to do with the how I'm, I'm exposed to English. Because, mm. you know, uh, before I moved, you know, most of the time when I listen to English or watch 
English TV shows, you know, of course, they're like dramatic and all of that um, in TV shows and movies and a lot of, you know, scenes where characters are being sassy or when they're fighting with each other. So I honestly, I feel more comfortable fighting in English than in Chinese. <laughs> it's easier to be confrontational in English. I guess so. Yeah. yeah. I, no, I guess like I, I, yeah, I kind of see that because you feel like, I don't know. I mean, this is, I, I feel the same way, but I feel like my again, lack of filter and, and willingness to be more confrontational is really born out of like, um, I don't really fully understand social norm. Like, I mm-hmm. I dream for the day that I gain social awareness in Chinese because I feel like I still lack social awareness when I'm speaking in Chinese. And so like, I feel like I come across as being an incredibly socially inappropriate person sometimes. And I just don't mm-hmm. know, but I don't really care. You know what I mean? And so I think that makes it yeah, easier yeah, yeah. to like fight with people if you need to, you know, because <laughs> you just care less. But that's so awesome. I mean, I don't know. I just like so like so you so you basically from what you're telling me, you basically fell in love with English before you even went to school, which means that which just yeah. makes sense. Right. Because I guess if we're talking about like the the inst- institutional constrictions of, of language <laughs> study in Taiwan, um, you 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 made a you you fell in love with English before school ruined you basically um but like but how did that translate into like uh from like I like to watch Disney movies to um I'm going to make this a career now where did you where did that point come in where you decided that wow um that's such a big question but I I always think about these things actually here and there because I still try to you know kind of piece my life together to see you know how I got here and I think one of the points was, um, as I mentioned earlier, kind of seeing my classmates struggle. And then, you know, in high school, because my English was better than other people in class usually. Um, so I was kind of assigned as the TA in class, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I would help out with those behind um, if necessary, or they would come to me for questions. And then that's when I started to realize that why I can get this, but you can't. Um, not in a demeaning way, but in the way that I'm just genuinely curious. Right? Why, like, why is this clicking for me, but it's not clicking for you for some reason? How do we make yeah, it click exactly. for you? Mm, yeah, gotcha. Yeah. So I tried my best in my way to explain or to demonstrate, to show um, whatever it's going on that we're mm-hmm. learning. But, you know, as we said before, a lot of times in the textbook is the dry grammar or something that's very rule-based. So even though I explain it, they get it but they, they, they're not able to process it. And the next time they will still make the same mistake. Um, so it's got that kind of cycle that really, you know, kept us in, including me as well, that made me realize that I really want to know how this works. And that's kind of got me into this um, linguistics and language teaching world. I got to learn how um, people require languages, what are the mechanisms behind them. And, you know, a lot of times when I learn the theories or frameworks in class, they really speak to me because they actually correspond to how I learned English mm. um, when I was very young and also how my classmates learn English in school and how and why that doesn't work in a lot of ways. Um, of course, you know, they, they're literate in English, but they're not able to communicate in the way that's you know efficient or necessarily comprehensible. Um, so that kind of got me into that world and then seeing how I can actually help people in a way that... Um, um, in a way that I find meaningful, if that makes sense. Mm. And now I just really enjoy um, the aspect of empowerment in this career that we have, that is to, to really empower people to have a voice, especially in my case in ESL, 
so that they can function in the target language environment in the U.S. in particular. Mm. That's really encouraging to hear because I feel like, again, like, I mean, you've been in the language learning and teaching world since undergrad, right? And I feel like even, I mean, I haven't, I feel like you've spent much more time in that field than I have because I just really only started after I graduated. But I feel like once you step into like what that actually looks like, it's easy to like, I think anyone on the planet who has ever been to school can be like, ah, Mm -hmm. um, you know, people, students struggle and I wish there was a way to help them not struggle. I feel like, uh, you know, a lot of people have that sense of it. But like once you step into like, you know, the nitty gritty of it, it's really easy, at least from my perspective, to be like super discouraged and be like, Mm -hmm. man, this is never and i'm just so like i don't know i just find you so refreshing because like you seem to always have that optimism about um you know especially with english in taiwan or in asia in general just because Mm -hmm. like english has there's so many people who like literally fear english because number one like you english studies is so ubiquitous right like english is not just like a foreign language that's optional like in the u.s right we have the 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 wonderful privilege yeah. of assuming that everyone in the world speaks the same language <laughs> as us so we don't ever have to learn a second language which is like a really great way to approach life in the world um <laughs> but so so as so as a result it's not as if like people put language study in the forefront of their minds but like in asia mm-hmm. you see all these people who like have some relationship with english and it's either like it ranges from either like pretty okay to like straight up it has ruined my life you know people who like have this like uh like you know like pathological fear of english so to speak and so yeah i mean i just commend you for still being willing to take that because i do feel like that again the institutional obstacles are so great (laughs) um but to but to be able to do that i think what's interesting is that you mentioned that um when you are thinking of strategies of how to make english more comprehensible and um you know better to learn better better palatable for more palatable for students you you said something about how you think about how you learned english right and i think what's interesting about mm-hmm. the both of us is that um you're teaching you're making a career out of teaching your second language and i'm also making a career teaching uh my second language and so um usually when it comes to like language people have this expectation that teachers ought to be native speakers right I know that at least in the U.S., I mean, this is changing now, and I feel like some of the best Chinese teachers out there um, that I've learned from are not native speakers. Um, mm-hmm. But there definitely exists this, like, you know, slight bias. It's not slight. It's a big bias against, like, yeah, um, yeah, if you're yeah, not a native sure. speaker, it's like, what are you even doing here? You know, like, mm-hmm. there's there's yeah, definitely, like, you know, this, exactly, right? It's kind of like, you know, like, if you can't fulfill this basic tenet of being a teacher why are you even trying you know have you I I imagine the landscape looks a little bit different in Taiwan if only because like I feel a lot of English teachers in classrooms there are like you know because again there you require such a deep understanding of why English is being taught in the first place in the classroom which is to be honest a lot of the times for testing um so I imagine, and, and also because English is so ubiquitous as a subject, um, but like, do you, have you ever seen kind of that like bias of like, you know, not being a native speaker of English and yet you're like, but I'm an English teacher. And not only that, I teach other people how to teach English, so so to speak, you know, have you ever, have you ever faced that kind of dilemma? Oh yeah, absolutely. And then <laughs> I <Great>. think, <laughs> I think that's something very interesting because you know, we still make mistakes. And then, mm. you know, a lot of us, it depends on your level, of course, but a lot of us maybe still feel, don't feel as comfortable um, expressing ourselves in the second language um, oh, than, yeah. you know, how we do it in the first language. Of course, that makes sense. And, you know, when I was in teacher's college, when I was in grad school, I remember in the classroom practices class, we read a journal article about 
how second language, um, or like I should say non-native teachers, non-native speaking teachers mm. feel inferior just naturally um, for all of the reasons that we mentioned. Mm. Um, so I felt that way beforehand, you know, here and there. But I do appreciate the fact that we're non-native speakers because we know how this works. We learn from scratch. Mm. We pick it up um, from scratch and we know the mechanisms behind them, especially for grammar, for phonology, pronunciation, and all the other stuff that um, native speakers without any background knowledge of linguistics or you know their native language would know. And I think that really puts us um, an advantage Although I do see that kind of bias is just circulating in different parts of the societies in the U.S. or even in Taiwan. Um, and a lot of times, sadly, those biases are kind of connected to um, race mm. um, in terms of that, um, especially in other private settings in Taiwan, as far as I know. Have you seen that personally happen to like people who you know or like in places that you've been in? Um, I've seen it personally. I've experienced it personally, too. Mm. And I think a part of the biases is from the fact that the institutional constraints going back to that. Mm. And some people think that um, students are not able to succeed in public school settings because because of the teachers. And, the, uh. you know, the teachers in the public school setting are not native speakers. So when they want to seek support from outside of the public school system, automatically they want to go to native speakers because they think it's so polar opposite. They think it's so different. There's so much hope from a totally different um, teacher population, I would say. Mm. Um, so before I moved to the U.S., I was working in um, kind of a private school setting, but mainly for online classes. Um, and I was doing full-time work back then. So I was in the office um, of the company that I was working at. So we had some native speaking colleagues. And then sometimes I would notice that, um, you know, basically they're hired as teachers just, just because they're native speakers, although they have no idea how English works and or even how to improve students, uh, how to help students improve their English because they just have no idea. The only thing they can say is this is correct or this is not correct. But there's nothing mm. else that we can, you know, scaffold and help students from there. Um, not to mention that, you know, because of the this kind of biases and also this kind of prejudice against non-native speakers, there's some sort of um, wage gap and other situations going on. So it is frustrating, realistically, for a lot of people worldwide. Um, yeah, but I, you know, I think we bring yeah. different strengths to the table. Yeah, I think like... I don't know. I feel maybe there is a similar sort of thread like that for Chinese teachers, but to in a very like different context, because mm -hmm. obviously it's not as if like Chinese people, Chinese young people are coming over to America to backpack and have a cheap vacation <laughs> um, to do their gap year abroad here. You know, yeah. like uh, they do. People do do gap years. Uh, people from Asia do do gap years in the U.S., but for very different reasons. Yeah. Um, and so but it's more kind of like I think in the U.S. when you have cases of like native Chinese speakers who decide to teach even though they like are not professionally or personally invested in teaching and and are just like you know qualified to teach because they speak Chinese it really is kind of like a I need side income or um, it's kind of like a community builder thing kind of like and I'm, I'm saying this mostly about like you know uh, like those like weekend Chinese schools where it's mm -hmm. kind of like a bunch of moms who run it but but I think the merit in the structure like that at least on the American side is like um, people like that who are immigrants need something that resembles a community and you know ch teaching Chinese is one way to kind of like 
form a community yeah. you can form a community around that so mm-hmm. um i think one thing that's kind of interesting um is that like I don't know how true this would be if your classroom has 42 kids in it and it's really hard to kind of like personally relate to every child during class time. Um, but I feel like with world language teaching, um, it's it, you're you're always teaching, you're teaching language, but you're always teaching culture. And I'm putting culture in like heavy air quotes here because like it's so hard to define what that culture yeah. is, right? Like I mentioned on another episode with my friend that like, when it comes to teaching Chinese culture, I have such a hard time because, like, I realize that I actually know very little mm-hmm. about Chinese traditional culture. Like, I know very little about Chinese New Year, mm-hmm. so I hate teaching it because I just feel so like yeah. exposed. <laughs> um, but what I end up do, like, what what culture studies ends up being for me because of my background is more kind of like. Um, just like you know cultural behavior right social behavior yeah. amongst chinese people because i feel like that informs the language a lot mm-hmm. and i feel like that how you end up teaching culture as a language teacher is heavily informed by a teacher's background right like if you're if you're a chinese teacher who like grew up with like you know chinese new year being such an important part of your life then obviously it feels natural to teach it but like you know so given your background right like when you teach i don't i don't even know how you would teach like so-called english speaking culture like what what like okay let me ask you this like when is there like an expectation in english teaching to teach culture whatever that means and if so like what does that actually look like how do you even like navigate that yeah that's a good point i think yeah like you said you know the definition of culture is so elusive and then it really you know it depends on the context and you know what you're referring to i guess if we look at um the public school setting in taiwan again i think for english speaking culture very superficially is like holidays like Halloween, Thanksgiving. But like whose holidays? Like is it like American holidays or like do you like talk about Boxing Day like in Canada? Yeah, <laughs> like whose holidays? That's another good point because you know it's All of them? Like Yeah, well mainly still like the US holidays because gotcha. in, yeah, in Taiwan the English education that they, you know, impose on is um, sort of derived from American English, was based on American mm. English. So, I would say, you know, back in Taiwan, that would be sort of the definition of culture, English-speaking culture, if teachers want to introduce um, that kind of culture to students. Here, I find it rather more interesting because I feel like whenever I teach culture here in the U.S., it's more about the daily social cultural things that happen on the street, um, like cultures of greetings and how people make conversations, small talks, that kind of culture. Um, So I guess, you know, it depends on, of course, where you are and also the purpose of the courses and all of that. Um, You know, the target language courses are everywhere because, like you said, they're associated with the language themselves. And I think a lot of times that's what really makes students excited and motivated. And I like to see, you know, the sparks in their eyes when they learn something new about a target language culture that didn't know before. And that's something Mm -hmm. I tried to incorporate when I was in um, in the high school setting, when I tried to bring in something different that I didn't know before, like almost like trivia, um, for mm. them to be like, oh, wow, like that I didn't know. You know, that's something interesting about the US that I'm kind of, you know, trying to get to know more about, to kind of spark the curiosity. It's not just about the rule, it's not just about the grammar, but how people use it um, in their own context. Yeah, I find myself like, I I totally agree with what you're saying. And I feel like a lot of the times I try not to like be, well, no, I try not to, and yet I still do a lot of it. But like, I try not to be too, like, I want to try to not be as meta about like, nerding out on on grammar in front of my students, because I feel like 
they're probably not as excited about this as I am Dang, and yeah. we should probably be, you know what I yeah, mean? No. Like, but one of the things, right? Like, I, I don't know, like effective teaching strategies does not include me like going on and on about like why this radical appears in 70 different characters and how they're all interrelated, blah, blah, blah. Right. Yeah. Um, but I feel like some of the best moments in my class, um, as far as Chinese is concerned is like, you know, I, I've always said that Chinese is really illogical. Sometimes it just like, you know, it, it doesn't make sense if from an, from, 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 in many ways mm-hmm. but it doesn't also that doesn't mean that it's like unreasonable um or, or or just like not worth learning um because and i always parallel it with like well chinese doesn't make much sense but neither does english mm-hmm. right um and i love being able to draw those parallels um one of the things this is like tangentially related but i i love it like when um when you look at textbooks for Chinese and they teach things that people like real humans don't actually say. Oh, um, but the thing is like, it's always those things that the, that your students end up remembering and then repetitively using like my, my, the thorn in my side will always be mama hu hu because mm-hmm. that's like the one like tongue yu that they teach right off the bat. Cause mm-hmm. it's simple, right? It involves animals yeah. and it's the same two characters twice. And, and it's fun to say, and the th- the worst part is is that they always define it as like okay, right? Like mm-hmm, like I'm feeling mm-hmm. okay, right? Oh well mama and I'm like, no one says that, Just okay? Over, yeah, yeah, no yeah. one says right, no one says that. So like so that will always be a third of my because like people who study Chinese, people who like don't study Chinese and somehow pick it up and think that that's a legitimate phrase. Have you ever encountered like circumstances like that? I feel like there's a bunch of examples like that, like uh how like no one says ni hao ma, like that's not a thing either. Mm-hmm. Um to like greet people. Even ni hao is not really like that 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 much of a greeting in Chinese. Yeah. But like have you encountered cases where people like pick up pieces of English that are like grammatically correct but also like not things that real humans say oh yeah definitely um especially you know in in the english as a foreign language context where english is not used in daily life and a lot of times if students don't really seek resources outside like when i did when i was a student the only english they will get is from the textbook and the textbook is usually not as authentic of course you know as the english in real life and that happens i think in foreign language textbooks everywhere i think um i can't really think of an example right now but there are definitely times when i explicitly told my students do not remember this although it's not a textbook (laughs) please don't learn this yeah please don't learn this i think oh one example i can think of right now is a phrase called thank you for your listening oh my gosh that's not even grammatically correct did that ring a bell though no, I've never heard that before in my life. Okay, that's good because I, I I've heard like thank you for listening, but like thank you for your listening. Oh yeah, like and that phrase like as is what is very common in Taiwan English in the textbook. You're kidding? Yeah, no, I'm not kidding. And then they say oh after your presentation, after you share, you say thank you for your listening. And I said, kids, oh, that's no. not right. <laughs> <laughs> kids, don't say that. You're gonna look silly. I know. And then yeah, oh, that still boggles me sometimes. I'm like how yeah oh my gosh one of the things that i keep seeing too is um and i've seen this in hong kong which i'm just like has usually been my gold standard of like chinese and english coexisting in perfect harmony Mm -hmm. but like i remember going to ikea in hong kong and they did that thing where it was like welcome to i don't know welcome to put your shopping carts here something the welcome to blah 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 and i'm like welcome is not a verb in this sense it drives me (laughs) drives me up a wall because the thing is like you totally understand like why they say that yeah and like the thing is there's no 
like good way to say that in English unless you totally like reconfigured the sentence, right? Mm-hmm. The idea of like, please do this. You would end up saying like, please do this, which sounds totally different from like, we welcome you. You are invited. <laughs> Maybe that's it. Like you are invited to put your shopping carts here, which yeah. doesn't sound quite as snappy when you're like putting it on a sign somewhere. But that, I think that's like that, that English mishap will always be um, one of my least favorites, but the one of the most ubiquitous Um the other one being the uh, the 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 um, I'm fine, thank you, and you. I feel like oh, that's a little yeah. bit older. Have you heard that joke where it's kind of like the the person who like drives their car into a ditch and then is stuck there, and then like some person shouts down the just they see the person who's in the car, um, and the person shouts down into the ditch. They're like, "How are you?" And the person shouts back up from the car, "I'm fine, thank you." And you, so and then the guy just drives away, and then the person in the car dies. Like, oh god, that's so like. I don't know if they still do that, and I really hope they they don't. But I feel like if Chinese textbooks in English speaking countries are still teaching ni hao ma as a legitimate mm-hmm. greeting, then they probably are still teaching I'm fine, thank you, and you mm-hmm. as like a legitimate greeting in English. Yeah, I have a feeling that 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 is still there. And then oh, you know, God. although we mentioned that you know repetitions are very helpful for language learning, especially for remembering or you know using chunks and phrases in. Um, conversations or in real life, you know, language use. But that's also a danger of repetition. If you repeat it too many times out of context, it becomes automatic, but automatic in the way that is not appropriate. And mm. yeah, so that's a funny story because my partner um, actually learned a semester of Chinese when he was in Taiwan. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But then that didn't turn out very good. Well, f- there's so many factors into it. We can have another episode just about him. Um, right. But one right. phrase that he still remembers from his Chinese class is 我喜欢游泳. I like swimming. <laughs> and that's okay. the only thing he can say. And then <laughs> and whenever he, whenever he wants to show off or when, you know, when we were in Taiwan, whenever he wanted to connect with a local Taiwanese person, <laughs> oh, no. he would just say 我喜欢游泳. I like swimming to everybody. That's hilarious. Yeah. Wait, but like, why that though? Why 我喜欢游泳? That's Does the he thing. Actually, like, That's swim? the thing. I tried to ask him, but he, I think he has PTSD from his class. So he was like, <laughs> not uncommon. Asking. Yeah, but that oh, that was really really interesting because from a you know from a linguistics perspective that shows the power of repetition or automation. Um, mm. But just you know, it's so interesting, out of context, and then, I mean, at least we know one thing about him that he likes swimming. I, I'm I'm sure, like I'm glad that it's actually true. Like I'm, yeah, is- <laughs> I'm sure that like you know, at least the one thing he can say in Chinese is like actually somewhat like not not totally like that is true oh my gosh that's so funny that is true you had mentioned in like the uh, outline that we wrote that uh you you said that there are many irregular or like weird things that happen in every language and and i, I agree uh i think that chinese is very weird and i yeah. also think english is very weird um and the the phrase that i've adopted when my with my kids especially my younger kids when um when things when they ask like but why isn't it like this why can't you say well it's is yeah. Instead of just saying that, like, well, is can only be used when you're connecting nouns and talking about someone's like, per- like identity, because they're in sixth grade, and they don't know what the word identity is. Um, like, <laughs> uh, I just tell them Chinese and English are different, and that's that's all, right? And yeah. and I feel like in that sense, I kind of like sort of wipe off the discussion on the weird irregularities and um and that common nature, which I feel is okay with like younger kids, but with 
older kids, right, I feel like, you know, there's two realities. Number one, um, you know, they're older, which is a good reality because that means they can understand some of my nerdy grammar stuff, mm. uh, linguistic stuff. But the on the other hand, um, I I know that for a lot of them, it's not as if like, 100% of them are all going to study Chinese in college and become fluent, right? Yeah. And so if that's the case, I'd rather have them uh, walk away with skills, if at the very least, to like learn another language if they if they want to. So it becomes more kind of like a lesson on how to learn language rather than a lesson on how to learn Chinese. But like, mm-hmm. um, but I haven't been able to figure that out really to to be able to like kind of explain those like hard to explain things, right? Yeah. Like, do you just go straight into like what, like you know, well, this is the linguistic theory behind it or do you like how do you explain that in a way that doesn't overwhelm and is actually useful to to your students yeah i'm still trying to figure that out um, the balance of it and then you know um they say well in, in language the or acquisition theory they say that um kids are definitely at an advantage of acquiring acquiring a second language because they're like sponges mm-hmm. they just absorb yep. whatever you know you give them and then that's kind of how i learned um english and that's probably how you learn chinese as well um mm-hmm. but adult learners are also at an advantage because they have explicit um metacognitive skills to, to process things and so yeah. a lot of times we know that adult learners we're well, not even adult but like teenagers as well they want to compartmentalize information and then kind of process you know those um, pieces of information about the target language in a systematic way. But as we all know, language is weird. So there's just so much irregularity <laughs> in that. So I did, I, you know, when I teach, I do want to kind of systemize and then compartmentalize things for my students so that's easier to process. But there are certain things when I just have to be like, you know, there are always exceptions. In a language, if there are rules, there are always exceptions. And it depends on you know the audiences I have. If you know this semester I happen to have a section where they're all Chinese speakers, and then that's when I can pull in kind of the corresponding um, linguistic point in Mandarin Chinese, and I can be like, this is the example in Chinese, and then you know you would think this is weird, right? You would think this is irregular, and then you know a learner of Chinese would feel the same way. Just kind of mm. you know relate them to something that they know. And then to make them feel like I'm not alone in this, you know, every language is weird. And then, you know, this is just something I have to deal with. Um, I guess that's kind of how I approach that in terms of, you know, the mindset of the students. Um, But I also don't want to be too metalinguistic. So sometimes I kind of avoid the topic if I can. That's true. Yeah, I I think one thing that I kind of had to reckon for myself was this idea that at least for my students, a lot of them. Um, we're very like plug and play about anything other, not just like language, but like kind of like uh, give me the formula and mm-hmm. tell me how to operate it. And then and then if I plug in the numbers correctly, then I'll get the right answer. Right. Um, and, and I think with like a lot of languages that I don't know, have conjugation and rules, you could actually do that. Right. Like if you just had an entire quiz on like conjugate these verbs, mm-hmm. like, you know, conjugate ER verbs in Spanish um, and you just conjugate them uh, instant 100. Right. And I'm just like the only way, the only place where that mentality works with Chinese, I feel is like character writing mm-hmm. which i'm just like it's like if 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 conjugating verbs in spanish is like at a level one like the equivalent that like the fact that the equivalent in chinese is learning to write characters 
from memory mm-hmm. it feels like such an unfair comparison you know what i mean <laughs> yeah. you know like if that's like the only non like the only straightforward thing that we have to compare it's just like that's not even fair yeah. um so that on top of the fact that like you know chinese grammar though it is systematic it also feels very like eh, chinese grammar is whatever chinese people decided was correct grammar and <laughs> that's what we have you know and it just feels it's, it's just a feeling like it's a very feely language a lot of the time mm-hmm. um but yeah it's such a delicate balance between like um trying to reveal the system behind it because you do want to use that to your advantage especially with people who do have that metacognitive ability mm-hmm. um but also like i don't know i feel like i've and I feel like this is such a high school thing because like you know again the kids are just like they have seven other classes they have to worry about and so when they come into Chinese class I feel like you know if I can give them an environment where it's just kind of like yo just sit back and like listen to a lot of Chinese and you'll pick up on stuff and once you pick up on more and more stuff then like you'll be able to speak some of that stuff and it feels more natural I don't know I used to be such a a skeptic of that Mm -hmm. like theory because it was like my hardcore asian sensibility that was like nah if you're gonna learn a language you must suffer Um, (laughs) you must work really hard right um and if you're just sitting back and listening to language and enjoying yourself clearly you're doing something wrong um but i found that that has worked really really well for my for at least for like my my high school classroom and my middle school classroom but i don't know i'd be so interested to see how that works in college because i imagine that like if you're called the one downside to that um is that I feel like language acquisition in that way works a lot more slowly, mm-hmm. right? And then, and if you're a college student, right, and you're kind of like, uh, excuse me, I have one semester to learn this language. Mm-hmm. Please, please give me more things to memorize so I can make this move along faster. I imagine your approach, or, or in your case, if it's like students who like are learning English for a very immediate yeah. need, I imagine it'd be a lot different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for different purposes as well. Because in my context mm. um, now, most of them, you know, learn English for academic purposes. Purposes. So we're more leaning towards, um, you know, of course, elevated correct grammar and also um, academic writing. So the whole mm. focus is very different in the context I'm teaching now. Um, but I do incorporate communicative um, elements into the class so that, you know, it's, it's not just about, you know, writing for papers for a class, yeah. but it's about how you really integrate English into your um, system, quote unquote. Yeah, I, I, I so commend you for that because I feel like if you're teaching students to like if their main goal and I guess your main goal by 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 proxy is that like, well, they're in, the, they're in this class because they need to learn how to write academic papers because that's what they're here for. I think it would be so easy to be like because like written academic English is so different from colloquial English. Right. Mm-hmm. And I've definitely seen examples of like non-native speakers who can write like, you know, a really, really great yeah. academic paper. And then you go to talk to them and they're like can't speak english know. you know and you're like how do the how does this work and yeah. I, I just so commit because i feel like you definitely have that option of being like yeah let's throw the, the community communicative stuff out the window and let's just teach you how to write papers because that's realistically all you need to do um but i feel it really says a lot about your heart and your passion that you take the time to you know have them learn to communicate while also learning how to write academic papers which is in itself really hard even for a native speaker yeah. so just so great um you also said something about like i I think this is so interesting. You said that you, uh, when you speak, I'm guessing in like your second language that you have this out of body experience. I, again, I'm going to agree with that, but I want to hear what you mean by that before I, I tell you what I think I, that means for me. Yeah. I mean, out of body is just really a lack of better words, but <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's perfect. Cause I, again, you said that and I was like, that resonates. Oh, yeah. You didn't have to expand. On. So good communication. That's great. But what is that? But what does that actually mean for you? What does that feel like? It's just now, you know, I've, 
of course, by no means I'm an expert, but now, you know, I study linguistics and then I'm in language teaching for a while. Um, and also as a second language learner and speaker for a long time. Now I kind of, because I know how English works most of the time in in daily use, also in, you know, the grammar and the phonology and all of that. So a lot of times when I'm speaking English, um, you know, in real time to other people, not in a classroom setting, but just like, you know, with a native speaker or with someone on the street, like I notice what I'm doing, if that makes sense. I'm kind of like mm. out of my body looking at how I use English, especially in pragmatics most of the time. So for example, when I'm making small talk and then I have these strategies that I teach my students and I see myself using them and I'm like, oh, this is how you continue a conversation or this is how you end it. Ah, I see what you're doing mm. right here. Um, mm. This kind of weird moments that I have in my brain is almost like, the, the the echo in my brain is telling me like yeah I see what you're doing great keep doing this yes you're making this work um it's it's weird it's like I'm doing it in real time but then meta meta linguistically I'm also observing myself at the same time and that's something that I've started yeah. to notice um in my own language use and yeah that's just really interesting I do have a quote unquote teacher voice when I'm in the classroom <laughs> and it's <laughs> so painful when I watch myself teach because you know when I was in grad school oh, I had to take no. myself and then yeah same. yeah and I think it's just in general it's weird to hear yourself talk you know to hear your own voice um but to see myself mm. teach and to see how I use my language now I'm used to it but at first I was like who is this person <laughs> yeah my partner said the same thing you know I think at one point he heard me teach here and there and then he will be like I don't know who this person is but you sound weird <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i mean i guess i guess that's just, that's the thing that everyone can kind of empathize with i feel like our professional selves are always going to be kind of kind of weird because like we're just public speaking all day yeah long, and it's know? instructional like, language yeah yeah and so i don't know i think one thing that i will struggle with is like in order to have that I don't know, instructional language to, to really feel like you own mm -hmm. that. You kind of have to feel like you actually know what you're exactly. doing. Exactly. Which is very rare for mm -hmm. me, you know? Yeah. I mean, same, you know, if I were going to teach Chinese, I would feel so, you know, incompetent and not you know, ready to oh you know, share whatever I know about Chinese because I don't know a lot. And what's interesting is, <laughs> you know, the things I know about Chinese as a language, you know, whether it's grammar, phonology or whatnot, actually is from a non-native speaker who is my professor in National Taiwan University, Karen Jong. Oh my yeah, goodness. So she, okay, please talk about her because I love her and I've never met her, but please tell, tell, please tell everyone how great she, she is. She is so great. She's, she's great. my mentor in National Taiwan University. Um, her, she, she is an English native speaker, but she's so invested in Chinese culture and language. And so she's been living in Taiwan for more than 20 years, I believe almost 30 years. Um, and then she specializes in phonology and linguistics in particular um, for English and also Chinese. And she's just so motivated that you wouldn't recognize that she's a non-native speaker. She speaks just like every regular Taiwanese person you would meet on the street. And, you know, because that's her second language, so she really understands how this language works. So she's a really, really competent, brilliant bilingual um, in both languages, of course. So in class, she would share a lot of things that she knows about Chinese, but actually we native speakers don't. And then, you know, one reason, of course, is, you know, she learned it explicitly, but for us, we just picked it up when we were young. And then she said, that's the beauty of learning and using a second language that is 
you know, you don't take it for granted because you learn from scratch, you polish it, you keep it up, you really invest your time and effort into it. And now you can use it almost like a native speaker for her. It's like, um, you know, it really, you know, an achievement that she has and then that kind of joy that she has as well. And also when she shares the things that, you know, native speakers don't, that we're, that, that's really, really fun anyway. So I just learned a lot from her a lot about um of course about english but also about chinese in particular yeah i think i totally agree because like again she's lived in taiwan for 30 years and you don't make that kind of investment without really knowing your stuff right and i think what's so funny is that like um multilingualism being bilingual or whatever is such a commodity that but it's a commodity these days in the sense that's kind of like you should be able to be fluent in multiple language and also have a real job you know what i mean um and so mm -hmm, i'm sure that a lot mm -hmm. of people who are listening to this are like listening to chandra and being like yo you could like do business and make like a bajillion dollars because you're english and you're chinese you're fluent perfectly fluent in both uh so why are you not doing that and instead like becoming a teacher the most beguiled of professions <laughs> um but yeah. but i think it boils down to that passion and that like you know what 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 you're interested in and what you want to reform i think matters a lot more and i think with karen i only i mean you had mentioned her a bunch of times and i was just like oh yeah she seems cool um but it didn't really click for me until I found this TED talk that she did. Um, and I was like, oh, mm -hmm. that Karen Chung. And yeah. I was listening to this and I was like hypnotized by her because it was like she had it, her thing was on like pronunciation, right? And how important it was for yes. like Chinese learners, uh, Chinese non-native speakers to like care about pronunciation and and vis-a-vis -vis that like english learners should also care about their pronunciation it's not just about like getting the words out but it's just her eye for detail like she cares about that stuff so much and the thing is like it's not just like she's picky about it she's like i'm picky about it and also here's the best way to learn it without having to kill yourself her echo method mm -hmm. is still something that i do for myself with chinese <laughs> um you yeah. know and I used to do that when I took a class in undergrad. And I think a part of the reason, you know, why I sound the way that I sound now, you know, a, a big part of a, a big part of it, you know, goes to her. Mm -hmm. I, I really good credits to her because she really, you know, put me, you know, onto another level in terms of my English, no matter it's accent or just English proficiency in general. Um, yeah, so check that out. Um, Karen Jung, she's really amazing. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna definitely link that TED TEDx talk in the show notes as well as maybe her entire website because it's like amazing. Yeah. Um. But yeah, that that dedication to detail and like I I mean again I'm saying that and also you know again it's I think it's so e and I'm sure you know this it's so easy to idealize the uh the language classroom, um because there's just so many like bells and whistles that and and so many ways you can delve into the details and then you actually start teaching and you're just like there's so many other yeah. things you know like there's so many the, the institutional obstacles um mm -hmm. as well as like things like you know at least on my end like student anxiety and the fact that my kids are taking like three ap classes while mm. taking my seemingly non non yeah. non-consequential class and i'm just like how do we how do we keep things reasonable but i think um i think chander you're like living proof of how language learning is such like a lifelong process i think that's one thing that as like you know you're teaching you taught high school and now you're teaching grad students so people who are still like fairly early along in life mm -hmm. um me with with grade school kids and it's just like i feel like there is this inherent pressure maybe it is because of like you know like uh like you know 
acquisition theory and the fact that like you know you need to you need to learn all your language while your brain is still soft and mushy <laughs> before you're like you know you go hard and cold and unable to learn anything but i think like you know that the, it's important and, and karen i'm sure also is a testament to this is that like language is just such an ongoing process and it yeah. really what matters more is not your brain plasticity but like mm-hmm. how much you care about you know exactly. learning and later on the details um but yeah um this is this has been so great man i've been just like i feel like every time like we get together we have i feel so much in common just in parallel universes yeah Um, totally and and it's just really great and i and i love that you as a human exist because um number one it's your proof that like you can acquire a language without having to kill yourself (laughs) like you can you can do it from from just sheer love and interest as a you know four-year-old watching disney movies um and then as long as you persist it it will come to you Uh, but also that drive to to want to make that experience available and accessible for everyone which i think i don't know i think that's just such a worthy educational goal and i'm just really excited to see uh where what what where life leads you next because i think you're gonna do awesome things so thank you so much i really appreciate it for sure i believe i'll come back to the show to you know talk about languages again you know having my linguistic nerdy site come out um so yeah this won't be the last time you hear from me i believe awesome yeah no i hope so all right so thank you so much for coming and thank you for chatting about all the things that uh that that we both love in life thank you so much for your time yeah thank you patricia thank you everyone Hey everyone, thanks again for listening to another episode of the Bad Chinese Teacher Podcast. I really hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. If you liked it, please share it with a friend who might like it as well and spread the love. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast on wherever it is you listen to podcasts, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or even YouTube. We're on there too. If you really enjoy what we're doing here, it's really helpful for us if you left us a review on Apple Podcasts and left us Xing five stars as well. If you're looking for us on social media, you can find us on Instagram at Bad Chinese Teacher, on Twitter at Bad Chinese Pod, and on Facebook, you can just search us up by your name, Bad Chinese Teacher Podcast. If you're looking for me, Patricia, you can find me on social media. I'm at Patricia Liu on Instagram, at Patricia SQ Liu on Twitter, and you can find my writing at blog.patricialiu.net. We publish new episodes every Monday, so hope to see you back here next week. Bye-bye!